2: 20 starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso and Karen Feinerman. Tonight on Fast, Tesla's electric rally gaining speed as Wall Street crowns a new top bull on this stock. We are breaking down the big calls straight ahead. Plus, we're talking with the CEO of Ripple. The company just made the CNBC Disruptor 50 list. We'll talk about that in the latest on the crypto craze. And later, deal drama, a new twist in the mega mall merger that may have just gone bust. But we start off with the Fast Track on the data and 100 million reasons why the stock market may not be telling the true story about this economy americans skipping payments on more than 100 million loans in may that includes everything from student loans to car payments to mortgages the number more than triple that of april it's a latest sign that stimulus checks and unemployment benefits aren't enough to fully cover the expenses so when these programs run out what happens to that consumer and to the economy and of course the stock market guy
3: well uh, you you know that's a bit of a rhetorical question when you ask me it's not good and it's something we've alluded to for a while but if you (laughs) want anecdotal evidence you don't have to go any further than go and look at wells fargo's first quarter that they reported in the middle of april they took a 14 billion dollar loan loss provision which was up 413 percent year over year and oh by the way When they report, I think, in the middle of July, that number's probably going to go up again. And further anecdotal proof is the fact that Wells Fargo, I believe, at current prices, is trading below tangible book value. This is something that Dan talks about all the time. So the banks, I think, have been trying to tell the story, but the broader market has sort of been um, impervious to it until recently. So we'll see. Again, I'll say... I am not all that optimistic about where the consumer is six to nine months from now. Clearly, I hope I'm wrong. But I also think that behind closed doors, there are a lot of companies out there that are saying, you know what? We've learned to do more with less. Let's continue this moving forward.
2: Stimulus won't last forever and deferments and forbearance doesn't last forever either. So what happens, Steve Brasa, when those things are up? They get
1: extended. That's the short answer. We're, remember, we're in an election year, so both parties have a vested interest to extend those programs. I think that's what you will see. So, will it end pretty or ugly? Ugly, but it's not going to end anytime soon. And, and this close to all-time highs, you got to still be buying the market. I don't think it's about a program right now. I don't think it's about uh, you know the economy. I think you hit it last time I was on the show. It's about bridging that gap between now and when things normalize. If you can say that the Fed is going to outweigh it, the stimulus is going to outweigh it, politicians are going to outweigh it, and we're getting closer to a therapy or a vaccine, by the market.
2: Karen, what do you think? I mean, the banks obviously will see the first immediate sign, right, as to whether or not the consumer is going to pay once that sort of de- deferment uh, or forbearance period expires. What do you think is going to happen?
4: Well, I think um, we are going to see once this, this round expires, I, th- I agree with Steve, we'll see more. I think that that bridge will get extended further. Uh, not that we can fully, I mean, some people are just not going to be able to make those payments regardless of how how far the bridge goes. But I think for a while I've thought there's a disconnect between the rebound in the stock market more broadly and the rebound in the banks, which has been much more muted. So I think those two will need to converge at some point, whether that's, the, you know, the market goes down and the banks go down less. I'm not exactly sure. But I do think that um, a lot of those, you know, there was a lot of those loans, the student loans are government-backed, uh, mortgage loans are government-backed. so. I think that there is somewhat of a net there. Not that it wouldn't be really ugly in the interim, but I also think that the banks came into this really well capitalized. And I think that we are going to see big provisions. We're to, we saw one in the first quarter. We'll see more. But I think that's why the stocks are here, because the anticipation of big provisions. So I think that some bad economic data, really bad economic data, is priced in already. Tim? To the banks, not necessarily to the market well
0: yeah so so jobless claims this morning uh, didn 't give you a lot of relief um, the, the you know it 's kind of on again off again in terms of uh, the macro, I, I think, so green shoots, brown shoots, whatever you want to call this um, I, I, it 's hard to disagree with everyone 's assessment uh, that this is a bridge to the other side, and, and uh, that the consumer on the other side is is probably going to be look we were at we went into this at peak uh... employment and we went into this uh, at a place where also consumers had started to see some wage growth and that was very encouraging but uh, if you look at the stocks that have rallied in the market yes banks have not taken part and have underperformed in this in in meaningfully but but you've also seen consumer stocks that should be a tell into consumption trends i mean apple isn't that the ultimate test of of where discretionary income is so i also just think that that uh, consumers or or uh... creditors um, can be, you know, or debtors, excuse me, debtors can be opportunistic in this environment. I think anyone who has the ability to withhold payment will withhold payment. Um, and I think people holding onto their money as long as possible is also a function uh, of, of all the forbearance and of all the, essentially, the, the relief that's come in here. So I'm not sure we're getting a real read uh, on where the consumer is actually able to pay these loans and where they're actually putting them off because they can. I think we have to be careful about that side of this trade in the same way we're talking about the consumer who many cases is making more money with unemployment than they were with their regular salary um, is in a better place for as long as that lives. I
2: mean, there are a lot of things going on right now, which which sort of distort the picture. Grasso, I mean, PPP prevents businesses from from right sizing their businesses, at least for right now. We have the stimulus checks, which are sort of inflating what consumers have in terms of discretionary income. You have forbearance and deferrals, which allow consumers to not pay certain loans and to maybe have a little bit more discretionary income to do other things. Um, So does that bridge bring us to the other side where we figure out some of those consumers will never be able to pay?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think the people that came into this strong will leave strong. And I think there's been an overlay that if you turn on the news or if you listen to these programs, you're incentivized not to pay. So Tim touched on it. You're incentivized to hold on to your money. So I think people are, uh, I don't want to say synthetically holding on to their money that don't need to, but there are people that can make these payments that aren't. There are people that are staying on unemployment that shouldn't. And I think that they're stronger than we think they are, and they
2: will be stronger on the other side. So some subset of people out there, Guy, won't be able to, I mean, that's what it sounds like the bottom line artificially right now they're okay and they can open up their pocketbooks and retail sales can jump but in reality in three months whenever these programs end that's over
3: that's over and it's good it has to end and listen full disclosure i mean again i think people that watch the show and i know you get tired of hearing me say and i'll say it again for the hundredth time in my opinion some of the biggest villains amongst many of the 21st century are going to be central bankers. I bring that up because go back to that Jerome Powell 60 Minutes when he was asked the question where does this money come from and he effectively answered we create it out of thin air. People watching that say to themselves I can't create money out of thin air to put in my bank account. Why can they? And if you don't think that infuriates people you're just not paying attention. So part of this narrative I think it's at the foot of the Fed as well. People say, you know what? Why should I pay my bills when they can create money just like that? I don't think that's um, discussed enough. And I think that's one of the many unintended consequences of what's going on. And if it happens again in terms of another round of this stuff, it's just going to get worse. That cycle, that circle will become something you can't extricate yourself from, in my opinion.
2: Tim, you wanted to jump in? Well, yeah,
0: I, I mean, I agree with Guy I and mean, we're, we're, we're equally frustrated, I think, as peers on, on what the Fed has done and overstaying their welcome. But but but, the, you know, in the context of this question of what's happening to the consumer, where they're going to be on the other side, isn't the Fed going to nationalize their debts as well? I mean, are not people not paying student loans? Do they think at some point the government's actually going to take them on? So so uh, I hate this. But I'm telling you that that's part of uh, central banks overstaying their welcome and the new world of nationalizing both corporate balance sheets uh, and essentially nationalizing, <clears throat> excuse me, the consumer balance sheet. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the
2: fall.
4: Karen. Well, I just think there's a little bit of a distinction. I mean, the Treasury is the actual one who's just sort of giving the money away. Right. And the fund is I mean, the, the Fed is sort of funding that debt that the Treasury will need to take on. Right. So um, I, I agree with Stephen that it's an election year. And I think that the possibility of us not getting any more sort of candy is very low. So if you, I, I don't I, I don't want to bet against the Fed, even though I think the market's so high, given where this economy is.
2: All right. Well, our next guest sees loan defaults, creating more turmoil in the economy. Let's bring in Lindsay Piegza, Seafil's chief economist. Lindsay, great to have you with us.
5: Thanks for having me. Um, So
2: recent data has been not bad. Retail sales, the last jobs report. But you say this is not a good reflection of where we are.
5: Where are we then? Well, I do think that the data is a step in the right direction, but it reflects more of a temporary improvement. Consumers were pent up, facing an extreme amount of pent up demand. And so we did see this binge in May after an equally downsized uh, disappointment in April. But when we look at where we are from a longer-term perspective, consumption is still down 8% from those pre-pandemic levels in January. And on the labor side, yes, we did add surprisingly 2 million jobs in the latest report, But on net, we're still talking about a loss of 20 million. So these are tiny steps in the right direction, suggesting that we've moved into sort of the second phase of this three-phase pathway to recovery, starting at the initial stages of that deep decline. We've moved now to the bounce, but to get to a longer-term sustainable pathway to recovery, it's gonna be very slow, very bumpy, and quite a ways before we can talk about a sustainable uh, improvement in the growth rate. As an economist, I'm curious, Lindsay,
2: at what point in time do you think you will get the data points that reflect the true state of the consumer and the economy? Is it it a month? Is it three months? Is it
5: two quarters? I do think the data right now reflects the true state of the, the consumer, but it's very volatile. And the consumer is in a very volatile state, very dramatically shifting their spending patterns month to month. This isn't something that we normally see, but it reflects the chaotic nature of the consumer at this point. But I think really what you're getting to is when do we see more stable data points to get a better sense of the underlying trend And I don't think we're going to get that until closer to the end of the year or we turn the calendar page into 2021 and we start to see some stability in the economy and we start to get some stability in terms of the labor market as businesses reopen back to a more normal level of capacity in the marketplace. Right now, we're still talking about some businesses reopening, some waiting until the restrictions change from 25 to 50 to a full 100 percent capacity. So there still is a lot of volatility in terms of how businesses and how how business is going to function in the marketplace. So I don't think we're going to see that true level of uh, calming trend until sometime at the end of the year or next.
2: In terms of in terms of loan exposure, Lindsay, I'm curious as to how you you take a look at this figure of 100 million loans that aren't being paid in the latest month, um, and also what the ripple effects of that are. I mean what was interesting in this wall street journal article that that brought this whole whole thing up is that they noted that in in doing a credit score mispayments are noted and are factored in but not loans that are in deferral of some sort. And so, uh, you know, a bank or, or a lender taking a look at the state of a consumer right now may not be getting the full picture. And I asked you this knowing that you were a former mortgage analyst,
5: so you might have some insight on this. Well, I think there's actually two diverging themes in what we're seeing in terms of the consumer sector right now. On the one hand, there are millions of Americans that are skipping payments, particularly when it comes to student loans, auto loans. And this is reflecting both uh, increasingly favorable terms in terms of the debt holders, so those debt holders allowing the consumer to skip those payments. But it's also reflecting very reduced financial conditions in terms of both the individual and the household. Remember, the pandemic has left millions of businesses and and workers displaced. On the other hand, we're also seeing Americans pay down debt at this point, particularly credit card debt. Now, this is more a reflection of reduced expenditures. So we have been in lockdown for the past several months, but it's also a reflection of access to increased income. So we're seeing very favorable unemployment benefits, stimulus checks, other government programs, and some Americans have actually uh, benefited from this, and they're taking that opportunity to pay down debt levels. So we're seeing two very different themes when it comes to the debt market. Some may actually emerge from the pandemic in stronger financial footing, while others may face increased financial ruin.
2: All right, Lindsay, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay Piegza of Stiefel. Uh, Karen, especially as the banks uh, are preparing for the stress test next week how do you how do you view how they're going to do um, in those tests and whether or not there might be extra stresses put on
4: them in this process this time around um, Well, I think there's you know the stress tests were obviously put in place post-2008 uh, crisis for terrible scenarios, and we actually are in one. However, sort of ironic, I think if ever were the the stress tests were to give banks a little more room and be a, you know, just a little easier graders, that would be now, because they really want those banks to just keep functioning. So. I don't know. We talked yesterday about the idea of, you know, would J.P. Morgan uh, have a dividend cut as might be priced into their options? I really don't think so. I think we're going to see uh, I think we're going to see good marks almost across the board in the stress test. I hope that helps bank equities. All right. Uh, we got a big call on Tesla today. Jeffrey's upping its price target to
2: 1200 bucks a share. That's a new street high. Analysts say the COVID crisis is accelerating demand for electric vehicles. They also know Tesla continues to lead its peers in product range, capacity, and technology. Tesla getting more than a percent today. And it's interesting to see uh, you know, some of the other EV makers, stocks, trade up uh, in today's session. NEO, for instance, uh, the Chinese equivalent, if you will. Uh, traded, I believe, it was an all-time high on record volume, guy.
3: Yeah, and listen again for the for the hundredth time, I'll say that the Tesla befuddles me, and I, and I understand it. That a lot of people get it, and I don't. But what I have said over the last you know month or so is the comments I made going back to uh, the president's interview with Joe Kernan in, in January, when you know basically brought up Elon Musk. And ever since that point, the stock's only gone higher. And for further proof in terms of how the impervious the stock is, you know, it's mm-hmm. at $700 at the end of May. Elon Musk basically said the stock is too expensive. I'm paraphrasing. That lasted for about a day. And now here we are some 43% or so higher. So, it's clear that the trajectory of the stock is higher, and that's the way you have to play it. It'll do it without me, and it's done that for quite some time. But it doesn't mean the folks at home shouldn't still be in it.
2: Grasso, you're a believer in the bridge to the other side. You're a believer of the Fed liquidity. So is this one of these trades where you just hop on board and and enjoy the ride?
1: Yeah, I think you yeah, have to hop on board and enjoy the ride. I, I mean, I, I'm a little concerned over the nosebleed territory but you could have said that all the way from the price where they raised money i think that was uh 767 or thereabouts uh the stock its ability to work off overbought on an rsi is phenomenal if i look at the chart now it was overbought at uh, 1025 traded down to 990 and worked off the overbought status it's no longer overbought even when you look at the chart where it is now. Remember, it had a head start. So we were talking about all these names pre-pandemic. We talked about all the competition, talked about Ford, talked about GM, talked about BMW. But all of those car companies took a stutter step. And if anything, Tesla has been keeping at it while the other ones are making face masks and and, uh, inhalers. What you have now is Tesla has spread the gap between them and Tesla. So I think you kind of ride this one out. Look for support in the name. It's obviously around the 20-day moving average is 900. So you have a lot of room between uh, here and and then, but that's your exit strategy in Tesla. Keep playing it higher and play it for a 900 exit on on the way down.
2: All right, well, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Still ahead, you'll hear from the CEO of Ripple how he is making big waves in the cryptocurrency world. But first, what do Kim Kardashian and Harley Quinn have in common? No, it's not the next summer blockbuster. We've got the answer when Fast Money returns.
6: You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Spotify soaring today to a new all-time high following a report that Spotify has signed an exclusive deal with Kim Kardashian West for a criminal justice podcast exploring her work with wrongful convictions. The company also announcing a deal with DC Comics. The stock has gained more than 70 percent this quarter, putting it on track for its best quarter since going public two years ago. Big things Happened in that spot, apparently. So, Grasso, what's your take on this one?
1: So, I'm up about 30% in this trade in about five days or so. So, that's nosebleed territory. And normally, I would say, well, first of all, the viewer can do whatever they want with it because the exit's up to the end uh, and customer, so to speak. But when you look at podcasts, the headwind that Spotify had was Amazon. Because if Amazon got in here, it was going to kill everybody else in the space. That doesn't seem to be happening. When you look at it on a chart, we're not out of gas just yet. It can pull back just a little bit, but it just speaks to the positioning here that no one thought it would rip this high this fast. I saw unusual option activity six times the normal call volume about a week ago, and that's why I bought it. I'm staying long just
2: a little bit longer. Guy, quickly on spot, your thoughts?
3: Great call by Steve. I mean, you know, if he says take money and run, you got to listen to him. But it does feel like it has further room on the upside.
2: All right. Moving on. Check out shares of Kroger falling into the red today, despite topping Q1 earnings estimates and giving upbeat guidance for the rest of the year. Shares of the grocery chain are up more than 50 percent from its March lows. Karen, what do you make of this move?
4: Well, I think that's the part that being up so much from the bottom, I think, is really, uh, you know, the quarter was decent. I think there's some uh, disappointment that they're not giving um, um, more guidance on the rest of the year. I don't know how anyone can give guidance, actually. So I mean, it's not expensive here, certainly relative to itself. But I remember back a year or two ago when the Amazon threat was just seemed to be an uh, insurmountable obstacle. Maybe that's not the case anymore. but. uh, you know, the business, not that they're doing a good job. It's just that business has such such thin margins that it's not for me. So I don't own it.
2: All right. Well, Kroger not the only beaten down name today. Take a look at U.S. Steel falling double digits after the company warned its second quarter losses would be worse than expected. The company also raising $429 million through a common stock offering of 50 million shares. Um, Tim, you just mentioned this earlier this week.
0: Yeah. So look, the the story there is a company that has enormous uh, both uh, you know GDP sensitivity, but a, a, a levered balance sheet going into COVID-19 that was uh, part of you know a, a three-year trend really, and a trend that uh, some of this was trade war. And the irony, of course, is we were protecting steel companies and throwing tariffs. Um, U.S. Steel went from forty-five dollars down to five. Um, this is a stock that I I, I think ultimately does raise money when they can. So it's a 29 percent dilution. And they're not unlike some other companies we spent time talking about in the last month that, that if they can raise money here, they will. And it's about having liquidity, even if it's a painful dilution. So um, I, I believe in the trade and be clear, uh, this is a, a stock that I think has uh, a, a lot of you know, kind of default dynamics priced into it. And I don't even think they're close to that. Again, they raised money here uh, defensively, but it's it's not a trade for the faint of heart. I mean, it's, it's no question. A lot of these resource companies that are tethered to also expectations of a stimulus plan, that's not why you own U.S. Steel. Uh, you own it on recovery and hot rolled steel and, and some, some GDP recovery, but that they're not going to have the financial distress that the balance sheet is priced in.
3: Guy? I, I agree with Tim. He nailed it. Listen, I was going to mention... You know, prior to all the talk about, you know, trade wars and what have you, U.S. Steel was a $43 stock headed probably to $50. All the steel stocks were crushing it. And now you see where they are, you know, a year and a half, two years later. It's it's fascinating quickly about Kroger. And I hear what Karen's saying. It was actually a very good quarter. Margins were much better operating income. It was like nine hundred and fifty million dollars. Same quarter last year, up to one point four billion dollars now. I think the only reason, in my opinion, the stock is lower is because they didn't want to give guidance. But this is not an expensive stock. And if you really parse through this quarter, it actually is very good. I think you buy Kroger on this weakness.
2: All right, coming up, tracking trades on Robinhood started as a college side gig for our next guest. Now his project is one of Wall Street's biggest obsessions. We'll talk to the founder of Robin RobinTrack straight ahead. And later, auction traders betting this auto stock is ready to roar. We'll tell you what it is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Pass Money. We are learning new details tonight after a 20-year-old Robinhood trader took his own life. Let's get to Kate Rooney with the story. Kate.
7: Hey, Melissa. Yeah, this is an awful situation. Alex Kearns telling his parents in a suicide note seen by CNBC that he had lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on the trading app Robinhood. According to his family, the college sophomore was studying management and had a growing interest in financial markets. And according to a screenshot he left of his account, Alex had racked up a negative $730,000 cash balance. But his cousin, who we spoke to, says Alex may have misinterpreted what he owed. It could have been reflecting the other side of an options trade that had not yet settled. FINRA, of course, requires brokerage firms to approve clients for that type of trading. But this tragedy underlines the risks of complicated derivatives, especially for the flood of new retail investors that we're seeing this year. Melissa.
2: Curious, Kate, has Robinhood said anything about this stuff?
7: They have. They issued a response that they have reached out to the family and that they are looking into the way that they offer options trading. We don't know what that looks like yet. And they wouldn't uh, tell us any of the details about the account, but they could end up changing the way that they actually do options. Um, And like we mentioned, others in the industry have similar obligations of uh, putting out a questionnaire or some sort of requirement and survey of what type of trader the person is and their account balance and other things like sophistication before they approve the trader for doing options. And uh, this could change the way and the safeguards around some of the option trading in the industry.
2: All right. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Well, Alex Kearns was just one of 10 million Robinhood users, and that number, of course, has grown in this pandemic and continues to grow as retail trading picks up. At the center of the day trading boom, a site called Track. It is unaffiliated with Robinhood, but it does use the information from the trading platform to track the latest trends among its users. It's become a key resource to major money managers and traders alike. Joining us now is Casey Primozik, the founder of Robin Track. Casey, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. You were a student in college, and this was your your side project. Um, I'm wondering how you got this idea and why you thought this could be useful.
8: So, I'm a Robinhood user myself. I'm a fan of their platform, a fan of their philosophy, and um, I noticed that they were publishing the popularity numbers on their website. But um, I noticed that you didn't really get any context. All you saw was the current number. I'd built a couple other tracking websites in the past. It's kind of just something I'm interested in, and um, I saw the opportunity to do it. I was just curious for the most part. And yeah, Robin Track was the result.
2: I mean, I, I, for one, check Robin Track almost every day to get a handle on what's going on in the retail trader brain, Casey. I'm wondering how you've seen traffic pick up throughout this pandemic.
8: So, yeah, there's been a very dramatic increase in traffic, uh, multiple hundreds of percents of increase. There's been a lot of people on both institutional and retail side who are trying to get a better idea of what retail traders are up to. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely been a dramatic increase as a result of the pandemic and the associated increase in retail trading activity.
0: Hey, Casey, it's Tim Seymour. Thank you for joining us. I'm curious in terms of some of the the trends in terms of time of day, uh, in terms of frequency, uh, in other words, number of times per day and how some of this has changed since the crisis. Uh, Tell us what you see.
8: Uh, so Track collects the popularity of every stock on the brokerage every hour, and the popularity is the number of unique accounts that hold any amount of shares. Um, I've seen like a lot of the popularity changes happen rather dramatically, depending on like earnings events or changes in price. Is that, is that what you wanted to know or? Yeah.
0: You know, it would be interesting to know what time of day are retail investors are they jumping in right at the open? Obviously, again, understanding when you see the most momentum uh, in the market certain times is, is very important to trading uh, and how you want to be tactical on your own.
8: Yeah. So I've seen there's a lot of different times when it comes in. There's often a lot of activity right at the open and especially the hour before close sort of matching movements in price. Um, that being said, like a lot of the time, the things that drive changes are news events or other social media trends. So, yeah, it, it can vary a lot depending on the stock and the reason people are trading it.
2: Casey, you had mentioned that a lot of institutions and hedge funds have expressed interest in, in using this data. Do you get a sense of how exactly they are using it? And are you worried that they perhaps are using it at the expense of the retail trader, that perhaps they are, are sort of riding the momentum and selling and, and letting the retail trader hang on?
8: So here's the thing. A lot of these big institutions, they get this data through other means. Like They, they get or, order flow directly from the brokerages. They have a lot of ways to get similar kinds of data, almost sometimes even more granular or accurate. Um, but the thing about Robinhood's pub, you know, publishing this popularity data for everyone publicly is that it gives a broader access to it. So there's definitely a lot of people who have been collecting RobTrack data. I've seen them with automated scrapers or just using the data download I provide on the website. Um, but at the same time, yeah, a lot of these different firms and brokerages or institutions would have this data some other way. So the fact that Robinhood or RobinTrack provides it is almost um, a net positive for, you know, the retail traders and non-institutional investors who are trying to get a better picture of the market.
2: So you think that retail traders can use the RobinTrack data in order to trade better for themselves, just knowing where the momentum is? Or do you feel in any way um, concerned about some of the new – it sounds like you're kind of an experienced trader yourself – Having been a follower of the markets and, and having the sense to know that tracking this data and and just sort of putting this data together is important, um, that there are a lot of newer traders in the market now and they could just be um, trading these penny stocks. I mean, a lot of a lot of the the biggest changes that you track happen in, in five-letter stocks.
8: That's true. So. One thing to keep in mind is Robin Track is just a tool, right? It's data. You can use data for constructive purposes. You can use it to, you know, push a bias of your own. Um, in my opinion, having more data is almost always a good thing. Uh, it's up to, you know, it's just another tool in the arsenal of traders trying to get a better handle on things, and it's up to them how they use it. In my opinion, I think it's definitely a valuable thing to see how the other retail traders are acting. So you know if you're part of this big FOMO bubble or whether or not the company you're investing in is legitimate. You know, and the price mm-hmm. changes are reflecting actual changes okay. in fundamentals.
2: Uh, last question to you, Casey, before we let you go. Are you making money off of this?
8: Uh, I pre- I'm, not, I'm making money off advertising on the site, but I will never and have never charged money for access to the data. I'm a big fan of Robinhood providing it for free. And to reflect that, I provide all the data I collect freely and will continue to do so into the future.
2: All right, Casey, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Casey Permizik, the uh, creator of Robin Track. Um, we've talked about the rise of the retail trader and the importance of the retail trader. And I think that there are a lot of different views on the impact of the retail trader on the markets. Guy, I'm, I'm curious what you think. We had Jim Bianco on earlier this week saying that he absolutely believed that the retail trader was a force in the market's momentum higher.
3: Yeah, I, I believe that as well. And, you know, weeks ago we talked about the fact that don't underestimate the, the, the notion that with sports not around, uh, people are, are going from – their sports gambling to the market and i think listen like him hate him agnostic about him dave portnoy introduced a lot of people to the market for better or for worse and i'm not going to take a stand either way but people are in the market but the story that kate spoke about is a tragedy and think about the number she mentioned his account and i can't speak exactly but you're talking about 3 quarters of a million dollars on one side potentially the offset in an options trade on the other side. This is a young person. How did that happen in the first place, if you think about it? And it's something that Tim mentioned the other day. Uh, it's one thing to have $5,000 in your account, and if you lose it, you lose it, you'll live to fight another day. It's another thing to have $5,000 in your account um, and have the ability to margin it up. That could be catastrophic, and I think that's what we're talking about here, and people should really understand the difference between the two.
2: Hear, here. All right, coming up, mall operator Simon Property may be having a little buyer's remorse over its deal with Taubman Centers, but is the deal really over? We're going to dig into that. And later, how the work from home boom could be changing the car market in America, the new numbers when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The mall deal drama heating up. Taubman Center's isn't taking the breakup of its deal with Simon Property lying down. The mall operator saying Simon knew there was a pandemic when it inked a takeover agreement in February, so it can't have buyer's remorse now. Simon, meantime, says the pandemic has disproportionately affected Taubman and remains confident it can prove in court that the decision to pull the plug was valid. Well, court is in session here on Fast Money. So Karen's turn to take the stand. Three points you want to make in defense of this deal? What are they, Karen?
4: Right. Well, the main one is that Simon has the overwhelmingly better argument given the strength of the merger agreement, right? So, I mean, one of, the thing, one of their arguments, which is that they allege that Simon um, in March knew of what their um, budget would be for 2020, right? Another one is that, um, that Simon cherry-picked um, competitors to compare Simon to that really shouldn't have been competitors uh, like a Walmart or a Home Depot. They're not in the luxury mall space, right? The third one is that um, it doesn't, Simon is, is I'm sorry, Talman is saying they haven't shown any reason that we don't have, that we've hurt our long-term ability to make money, that they haven't shown that. So the most important thing is that this is, there's no question Simon has very a very bad case of buyer's remorse because this is one of the worst timed deals that I remember for I don't know how long. It's obviously February was not the right time to sign up a huge mall deal at a gigantic price with a merger agreement that's just about as tight as any I've ever seen. No wonder they have buyer's remorse. I still ultimately think that... A deal will get done. Maybe it's a cut deal or maybe it's possibly even the original deal. We'll see. And uh, it'll be we'll, we'll we'll get something from the court no later than August 24th, but maybe sooner. So basically, you
2: think tough luck, Simon Property, <laughs> that all your arguments are, are pretty yes, flimsy. Tough luck. Yeah, it was a terribly yeah, time. I do it, think was, they're pretty it was probably flimsy, the worst time deal. Know. Right. In, in the history of malls, February 9th to sign a deal. Right, just before the, on the <laughs> precipice of the a global of malls, pandemic yeah. where there is a carve out in the takeout agreement um, around pandemics I mean it's just it's remarkable, Tim
0: yeah, I look I, Karen brings up the right points, um, and if you look at other mall operators it's a difficult time and, and I'll let uh, the merger ARB folks. Uh, this deal's been pretty interesting. There's, you know, Simon obviously had a 65 uh, percent move on speculation that they might be able to break the deal. And now that's some of that's coming off. Um, I'll just say for people that are assessing this kind of big trend here and, you know, think about the housing market and the home builders uh, and that trade in 2008 and nine. And, and it was very obvious what was going on in the housing market. Uh, and you still had plenty of opportunities uh, to, to, to make a call. I'm not saying, you know, patently rush out and go short uh, mall operators and commercial real estate, but the commercial real estate environment is is got a terrible setup. And, and I realize a lot of these names have already suffered enormous pain and drawdowns. But um, if you think about what's going on in urban centers, if you think about the change in consumer profile, look at all the e-commerce data we're getting in the digital online. You know, MasterCard just said uh, we're up 93 percent in e-commerce. People are not going out to the malls and then back into the office space. So uh, I think this is a trade in terms of being short this sector that there's still
3: more to do.
2: Guy, quickly, what would your verdict be if you were in that courtroom.
3: I mean, it seemed pretty ironclad. And I I think some of the lawyers that wrote up these documents have been on this show before, if I'm not mistaken. So but again, you know, I I don't litigate for for a career, so I will I will (laughs) hold off on judgment. What I will say is this. I'm sort of with Tim on this whole thing. Not only was the timing bad, the setup going into this whole thing was horrible as well. I mean, six months ago, before anybody ever heard of COVID, the environment wasn't all that great. Mm-hmm. And if you look now, and, and this sort of circles back to how we led the show, from what I'm reading, Mall of America is they've missed the last three months of their payments. So I, you know, I'm, I'm hard pressed to understand how this rectifies itself and how we get to, back to any semblance of where we were a year ago. I just don't see it happening. So I think to Tim's point, the timing now might be great, but these stocks could be hard pressed to go higher.
2: Coming up, Ripple making its debut on CNBC's Disruptor 50 list. CEO Brad Garlinghouse is no stranger to fast money. He makes his return to reveal how Ripple is shaking up the payment space. Plus, some twists and turns in the auto market, but option traders are betting one stock is about to kick into high gear. We will reveal the name when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a market flash on Marathon Petroleum. Let's get to Dom Chu. Dom. All right. So, Melissa, it's up roughly about 3% on 600,000-odd shares of After Hours volume. And this is
1: on some Dow Jones headlines saying that Marathon Petroleum, the $25 billion oil refiner, not to be confused with the exploration and production company, is uh, looking to proceed with potential buyers of its Speedway gas station unit. They're trying to sell it. It could have held a valuation of about $15 billion to $18 billion in the pre-COVID-19 kind of estimate. But right now, they're also looking at a possible spin off of the company. So it looks like it's restarting things, trying to get the Speedway unit sold or spun off to shareholders or to the public in some way, shape or form. But that's what's moving the stock right now. And that's the reason why it's up, again, about three and a half percent right now, 616,000 shares after hours volumes. We'll let you know if any, anything else happens with this story. But that's the reason why, Melissa, back over to you guys. All
2: right. Dom, thanks. Dom Chu, And uh, we do see the pop here 4% now. Uh, Steve Grasso, what do you make of this news?
1: Yeah, so when you look at this, I mean, there's, as, Don, uh, as Dom said, there's a bunch of things that go into the calculus here. Energy is somewhat uninvestable. But when this thing pops, it's almost a triple off the low that we've recently seen. And the stock is still down 36%. That should tell you something.
2: Well, it is that time of year again. CNBC is out with our Disruptor 50, a list of 50 companies shaking up their industry and reforming the way they operate. Number 28 on this year's list is no stranger to our Fast Money crypto audience. Ripple making its debut on the Disruptor 50 list. CEO Brad Garlinghouse joins us now. Brad, great to see you again. Welcome back to Fast Money.
9: Thank you for having me. It's great to see you again, and uh, this, despite the weird times.
2: Yeah, very strange times indeed. Um, on this day that you debut on, on the Disruptor 50 list, you're also making a, an announcement yourself in terms of your, your backing of pay ID. Can you explain what this is and why this sort of simplifies how crypto um, had transferred money in the past?
9: Absolutely. So at its core, Ripple has been all about enabling what we call an Internet of Value. Let's make all of these different networks that really don't talk to each other interoperable. We've all had the experience where, you know, when you ask a friend, you say, hey, I need to pay you money. Are you on Venmo? Are you on PayPal? Or outside the United States, maybe Alipay or PayU. Isn't it funny when I ask somebody for a phone number, I don't say, are you on AT&T? Are you on Verizon? I just get their phone number. The idea behind PayID is to simplify the ability to send someone money the same way to make it easy as easy as sending an email. I don't ask someone, are you on Google or Yahoo? I just send an email. And so PayID enables whether you're a large bank or I'll use a, a very successful regional bank in Chicago called Byline Bank. If you're an account holder there and I want to send you money, it should be as easy as typing Brad dollar sign Garlinghouse. And it, whether it's resolving to a, a Byline Bank or to Bitcoin, you know, all of those naming infrastructure can be much more, much simplified and interoperable.
2: I want to try and understand more what and who this disrupts. So who do you see as the main user of this sort of technology? Is it consumer to consumer money transfer or ultimately could it be a company paying another company for, uh, I don't know, buying a, buying a unit of theirs, for instance, or inventory, or I mean, how big could this be?
9: Well, so let me start by saying something about the word disruption in that sentence. I actually don't look at this, uh, we're thrilled and honored to be on the disruptor list. I think disruptor, particularly in Silicon Valley, can be a word that's kind of overused, that you know, it worked for Uber, it worked for some, but I think to some degree, it's not about move fast and break stuff. It's about building, it's about partnering and enabling. So, when I think about what PayID is doing, and really when I think about what Ripple is doing overall, how do we partner with the industry and make it more efficient? How do we make it better for consumers? How do we make it better for small businesses? What we're seeing with PayID is not that it's going to disrupt a bank or disrupt a payment provider, it's going to make them more efficient. It's going to reduce friction, it's going to make it easier for consumers, for small businesses. And if we can reduce the friction of payments, we actually can unlock a lot of things we don't really think about. Micropayments. There's a whole bunch of kind of almost science fiction Blade Runner kind of examples that if the friction of a payment can go to zero, it's going to make all of our lives a lot simpler, a lot better. It's going to bring people into the financial community that are either underbanked or unbanked.
2: All right. Brad, we're going to leave it there, but it's always great to speak with you.
9: Absolutely. Thanks for having
2: me. Brad Garlinghouse. You can find the full Disruptor 50 list at CNBC.com. Again, that was Ripple, um, which, of course, you might know XRP, the cryptocurrency. Uh, Karen, what do you mean? I mean, this, this Ripple, a lot of Ripple's customers are, in fact, banks. So this is not necessarily a disruption to the banks. But he makes a good point in terms of removing that friction of transaction.
4: Right. Well, that makes sense. I guess this, thing, this is more evolution than... Um than disruption but i'm also wondering sort of uh, on a related note about in this post-covid world people are probably going to want to use cash physical cash a lot less and have you know touchless uh, inter- interactions and i wonder if that will improve the adoption more quickly of some of these other payments all right coming up
2: how the auto market could be revving up for a big breakout the details when we come right back Welcome back to Fast Money. Today, CNBC is launching America at Home, a brand new series where we take a look deeper into the ways American life and American business have changed during the coronavirus pandemic. The ways we live and work, how we communicate with friends and family, how we travel and even how we stay put have all changed radically. And now our very own Phil LeBeau joins us for more on how that is impacting the auto industry. Hi, Phil.
10: Hey, Melissa, a lot of people thought that once we had people sheltering in place, this would mean terrible auto sales for several months. But we're really seeing quite the opposite. In fact, when you look at the new vehicle market, J.D. Power tracks retail sales on a weekly basis. Look where it was on March 29th, down 59 percent. You know where it was for the week that ended on Sunday the 14th? Down just 4 percent. Now, those sales are recovering In spite of the fact that we're seeing lower incentives out at the dealerships, there are fewer of those 0% for 84-month deals that are out there, and there's strong demand right now for pickups and SUVs. But are more people coming in because they've decided, look, I'm not taking mass transportation, I'm not going to car share anymore, I'm going to buy a new vehicle? Well, Toyota executives did say this week that there are reports from some of their dealers that they are seeing more first-time buyers or people who didn't have a vehicle and are now getting back into the market. On the used side of the market you are definitely seeing the impact of people saying, I've got to find some other means for getting around. The average price for a used vehicle right now, $21,752 according to Cox Automotive. Strong sales in June. They are surging around the country. Remember, 40 million used vehicles were sold last year. That was a record. Two you want to watch, Sonic Automotive, which came out with an update earlier this week talking about improving sales in the month of June. And then you've got CarMax, which is reporting its earnings tomorrow morning. We'll see what CarMax has to say about people rotating into used vehicles, Melissa, because of sheltering in place and now saying, I'm not going to be using mass transportation or car sharing, whatever it might be.
2: Um, As people may know, Phil, I I don't really drive. I live in New York City and I'm not familiar with the price of vehicles, but a used vehicle priced on average at twenty one thousand dollars or north of that seems kind of high. And I'm wondering at what at what point do consumers say, you know what, instead of paying twenty one thousand for used, I'm going to pay an extra five grand for a, a new car.
10: Well, you'd be paying a lot more than that. Look, the average price for a new vehicle, Melissa, and this has been driven up because of what we're seeing with pickup trucks and large SUVs, the average price for a new vehicle, you're getting up in the range of $36,000, $37,000. Mm. So that $21,000, actually the loan gap between new and used, it keeps expanding a little bit. But that, that is the difference right now if you were saying, okay, I'm just going to pay a little bit more for a new vehicle. You're actually paying quite a bit more.
2: Yeah. Phil, thanks. Uh, and by the way, out there, don't at me. I'm out of touch on this front. I will admit it huh. firsthand. I don't know anything about vehicles. Um, Guy Dami, I, I, I feel like I should go to you on this.
3: <laughs> well, there are a number of directions I can take this conversation, none of which are good. But I will say this. CarMax is a fascinating. This stock traded down to $37, I think, on March 20th. It closed at 98 today. As Phil mentioned, they report before, before the open tomorrow Go back and look. The prior all-time high, I think, was 101 back in February. I think you wait and see what they say because you really have no choice. But I think it opens above 100. It's breaking out to the upside, and it's not an expensive stock. So I think CarMax is fascinating here, Mel. All
2: right. Well, speaking of CarMax, let's get the options action on this one. Uh, The stock has more than doubled since March lows. Mike Coe, what do you see?
1: Yeah, it's interesting what Guy was just talking about because the options market seems to agree with him. It saw about five times the average daily options volume today. Bullish bets outpaced bearish ones by about 2 to 1. And it's implying about a 6% move, which is in line with the 5.2% it has averaged over the last eight quarters. A lot of that activity was concentrated in the $100 calls that expire tomorrow. So that's obviously bets on earnings. Buyers of those are betting that the earnings will actually provide good news. And you're going to see further upside.
2: All right. Mike, thanks for that. For more options action, full show tomorrow, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim.
0: Yeah, used cars and and fixing up your house. I mean, look, the the DIY trade. So home improvement Lowe's is one of the great re-rating stories of the last five years. There's no reason it's going to stop now. In fact, uh, I think it's got a lot more to go.
4: Karen. Yeah, I mean, it's too little, too late for Hertz, but actually used car prices being so firm is good for them. But that's not my final trade. It's that the consumer is still there. TJX is where they want to go for a bargain, so Come coming a little
1: bit of- I'm Spotify, the June 2.30 calls expire tomorrow. I think you're going to see a magnet to that price like we saw today, and maybe even you pop through it. Spotify.
2: Guy Dami.
3: If anybody has a '67 black GTO convertible, let me know at me. Uh, Kroger, I think the weakness is, uh, is 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 wrong. I think Kroger goes higher from here, Mel.
2: All right, thanks for watching Fast to See. You back here tomorrow at five for more. Meantime, Mad Money starts right now.
5: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.